Welcome, everybody, to episode 16 of the Fire Nuggets podcast. Today is November 30th, and we're psyched to have James Johnson as our guest. The goals here are pretty simple, bring in great guests and try to mine as much gold as possible for them in, you know, 30 to 60-ish minutes, uh, short, sweet, and deep. Uh, Joey's not going to be here to make it, or Joey can't make it today, so it's just going to be Jeff and myself, and we'll do our best to not drop the ball. How you doing, James? Good, good. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me on. Yeah, we appreciate you coming in, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's great. Um, so just a brief little kind of, uh, uh, maybe not brief, but a little intro on you. So you're a firefighter at Vancouver Fire Rescue Services. Is that right? That's correct. Yep. Yeah, I've been with Vancouver. Uh, guess I'm going into, going into my 11th year here pretty quick. Okay. And prior to that, what were you doing? <clears throat> I was a paid on call. So I started out in 2003, basically the year I graduated. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, yeah, started out in 2003 as a paid on call, um, in the place where I actually still live and, um, yeah, started that and really quickly knew I wanted to do it as a job, but I was fresh out of high school, really young. Um, so I got some pretty good advice from one of the captains who said, uh, go get some life experience and, and, you know, get some education or a trade and then, um, apply. So I basically did the paid on call thing, but wasn't active, actively pursuing getting hired full time and, and, uh, did some education and did a bunch of travel, played music a bunch, which is, uh, kind of a part of my story that I, you know, I don't really haven't really talked about too much, but, uh, played in, played in bands and toured and that sort of thing. And then, um, all while doing the paid on call stuff. And then eventually once I had all my requirements and stuff, I applied full-time and, and got on a Vancouver. Okay. I want to, I want to make sure you can't set me up like that. Me not ask what <laughs> instrument or instruments did you play? And uh, music? Yeah. So I played guitar. Uh, I played in, played in band. I started out drumming, uh, played in bands all through high school. And, um, and then after high school, kind of when I was doing the paid on call stuff, I was in a pretty heavy band. Um, and we, uh, got signed to a record label and did a bunch of touring and, and uh, it'd be a band you'd never heard of. Um, we got to tour a bunch, got to see most of the United States, which coming from Canada was pretty cool. And uh, and actually, that's been one of the great things with COVID is we actually restarted a band with guys that I had in high school. And we're actually this week, we're starting to track drums. And and uh, yeah, just we're all we're all old dads who are playing in a punk rock band again. So it's super fun. So three favorite bands of all time. Who do you got? Ooh, that is a tough one. Uh, my, my stuff changes all the time, but, um, and, and for most of the listeners, it's probably going to be stuff that no one's ever heard of, but, um, we uh, like obscure. Okay. So I guess one of my, probably one of my constants is a band called thrice kind of like, uh, started out as a heavy band and they're kind of more experimental now. Um, Oh, this is harder than any question you guys are going to ask about uh, fire service. Just so <laughs> many. Uh, <laughs> so we, many. Can, we can circle uh, back too. right now. I've been listening to a band like nonstop called disperse. They're like from um, Poland and I, I just cannot stop listening to them. And um, oh, another one would be strung out. It's like a punk rock band from Southern California. They're kind of a constant too. Perfect. Well, I got some homework to do after this. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I listen to like everything. I like, I like old school country. I love metal. I like kind of everything. So 
wide range of uh, musical taste. And then I've also heard you talk about before, and I don't know if this is prior to to where we've talked about or if this is kind of in parallel, but you were a, uh, an apprentice carpenter and a carpenter after that. Yeah, so that was kind of based um, coming out of uh, being a paid on call and uh, and kind of getting told I need some life experience. I just started I worked like restaurant jobs in high school and I, I moved like I was basically away from home at a very young age um, and uh, worked kind of all through high school, kind of 30 plus hours a week. And then once I did the paid on call thing, um, I got told that if I went into the construction trades, I'd get more money. Um, And so I I got hired as a carpenter's helper and uh, and eventually just kind of worked my way through an apprenticeship. So yeah, the way it works in Canada, and I know I've explained this in other settings before, but uh, the way it works is you do a combination of on the job training and then, and then go to a technical college for the for the educational portion. So you have to like log a certain amount of hours and you have to do that on the job site. And then basically every year you go to school for a school block. And then that's how you go through like first year, second year, third year, fourth year apprentice. Um, yeah. So I did all, I did all that. And there's an uh, exam at the end called the interprovincial exam, which is like a very difficult kind of end thing. And that, uh, that finishes you off with being a journeyman carpenter. So way it works in Canada is you're, you're nationally certified. So you get that designation. You're a red seal carpenter from, you know, British Columbia to Newfoundland. Okay. So this kind of leads right into the next one, besides being known for your love of maple syrup and just amazing hair, which I'm very jealous of. (laughs) You're also kind of like one of the building construction gurus in the fire service uh, right now. How did that kind of transition was that I, I hate that word guru because anyone who like refers to themselves as a guru, I'm like immediately suspicious of right away. So um, I, I, I wouldn't call myself like a, a guru or an expert or anything. I just really passionate about it. And, and uh, really for me, it was, um, I started seeing, um, I started seeing just a real lack of education and knowledge on it. And maybe that's just like, I, you know, I hate to, you know, don't want to talk about millennials or, you know, the newer generation, but the fire service just changed drastically where most, most men and women coming into the job were blue collar people for many, many years. And then, and then it just slowly started to change where there was more educational requirements. Excuse me. If you had a degree or you had two degrees, you ranked higher in the higher in the process. And, um, and so the knowledge and building construction and trades was just going down and down for the most part. And, you know, that's speaking pretty generally, um, you know, I'm sure there's lots of places that, that still have a lot of that culture, but for around our area, it wasn't the case. And, uh, and so that's really what got me, excuse me, sorry. I got me interested in the, in the teaching or part of it was just passing on the information as far as like on getting it onto kind of the larger scale where, um, I really, it came down to, I wanted to go to FDIC. It was, uh, really expensive to try and get out there. And, uh, and I knew if you got, if you were able to teach, then they, you got a free trip out there. So I put in for it really before I was teaching anywhere outside of just kind of locally. And then, uh, that's kind of how it, it grew to kind of the traveling and the teaching sort of stuff. Okay. You also work for training resurrected. Can you tell us a little bit about, about them? Yeah. So training resurrected is a company that myself and, uh, my buddy Evan Clark started, uh, started really because we, uh, um, we both, we were on the same crew 
And uh, we are like came up a couple of came across some situations with forcible entry that we really didn't know what we were doing at that time. Our department didn't have any props or any training with forcible entry. Um, so we just kind of started going down the the rabbit hole a bit with learning about it. And um, Evan was a steel fabricator before he got on the job. And uh, so we were sitting at white spot one morning and and drew up a, a prop uh, on a napkin that we thought might work. And, uh, and yeah, we just each threw in money and, uh, built a forcible entry prop. Uh, and it was about 3000 pounds, solid steel, way over-engineered. And, and, uh, when, then we just kind of, excuse me, through word of mouth, got, uh, a few people that were interested in doing some training and, and it kind of grew from there. Um, so now where we do, you know, we do a search class and we do, uh, started doing live fire classes, which is, we just got back this week. We were way up in Northern BC doing it and just kind of grown that way, but just started out because we were a couple guys who didn't really know what we were doing with forcible entry and, and wanted the opportunity to be able to play with it a bit. Okay. You've also taught at the justice Institute of British Columbia. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience there? Yeah. So the Justice Institute is um, the way it works in BC is we have like one provincially um, uh, kind of certified um, academy. And for many, many years, like, you know, maybe up until the last 15 years, when you applied for departments in BC, it would basically say you had to have your NFPA 1001 from the Justice Institute. Um, so it's basically like the only um, college. And then once like, um, training division in Texas opened up it kind of everything changed, but, uh, so yeah, it's our main fire Academy. Um, been there since 2000, was there since 2012 started as a burn tech. And, um, that's basically lighting fires in the burn building and, you know, filling SCBA cylinders and stuff. And, and, uh, I, I tell people all the time that my time as a burn tech was where I learned the most about fire behavior um, out of anywhere because I, you're lighting fires and like a good burn tech will have, you know, just the right fire when the students come in where it's, you've let it grow enough, but then you've choked it down. So when they get some air from the front door, it starts to roll. And, and I learned so much just about like, you know, things that weren't even really talked about like door control and the effects of, you know, flow path and, and that. And, so I did the burn tech thing for a bit and then became an instructor and mostly worked with the recruits. Um, so, so guys that were doing their, their firefighter one and two training. And, uh, and then basically right around the COVID time, I stopped working there and just focused on, on training resurrected stuff. All right. We got one more that I want to hit. I know that we had talked to, to Rob Fisher about this not too long ago, but you're part of the roof pervs. Can you tell <laughs> yeah. us a little bit about that group? I know you guys have been silent for a little bit, but. When are we going to get back and, and hear from you? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. That was kind of, um, I don't know if Robbie talked about it on the show about the, how it started, but um, really that whole thing just started uh, with Steven Tyler posting some pictures and uh, um, I think it was through Instagram and start and just started hashtag roof perv. Um, it'd be like the, you know, the underside of a church roof or just kind of interesting stuff. And then William Knight started doing the same thing. And then, uh, and then just my interest in construction, we all kind of got, um, connected together. And then one day there was a, a roof per Facebook page that was created. And, uh, and we all just kind of started posting a bit. And Robbie got involved right, right at the beginning as well. And, and uh, yeah, it was just kind of a mostly on Facebook, just a place to post interesting stuff. And then we did a few podcasts and uh, just like to 
talk about weird roof stuff. And yeah, it's kind of through COVID, we kind of had pretty quiet, which is kind of funny. You think when everyone's stuck at home, you'd be able to do more of that stuff. But, but uh, yeah, that's kind of how it got started. And, and it's really like a lot of the stuff that's put out is, if you have just you know the average firefighter who's not overly engaged or not interested they're probably going to look at a lot of that stuff and their eyes are going to glaze over right away but if you're a little bit of a nerd or you're you know like a dedicated truck firefighter or something like that there's lots of information that you probably find pretty interesting yeah i'll second that i uh i never really had that background growing up and even getting to the fire service i felt like i was way behind the eight ball when it came to building construction so Roof Pervs is one of my favorite Facebook pages. Um, just to hear you guys speak, I, I, just, I just sit down and read comments and try to learn a little bit from you guys and maybe ask a question here and there. But for our listeners, if you've never checked out that Facebook page, check it out. There's a lot of gold um, in there. Um, and, and you're also part of NFPA 1700 on that committee? I am technically. Um, <laughs> I'm an alternate on the committee and... Uh, the person that I was an alternate to, like the the primary person, basically went to every meeting and our I just didn't have the ability to to be actively involved. But I followed the whole thing really closely. But as far as like um, I didn't really I didn't provide anything to it. I was just just an alternate on it. I find that hard to believe, even behind the scenes with with uh, uh, with with Richard White, I'm, ama- I'm imagining that you had some some conversations that led to some some forward progress. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 honestly, like, um, yeah. I just I, I wish I could have been more involved in it. And I I you know obviously an opinionated guy and like to to be involved in stuff. But I yeah for that I just didn't. Uh, I was kind of following everything kind of in the shadows and watching it as it. And there there's just so many you know you know there's so many people on there that are you know, a thousand times smarter than I am when it comes to that stuff. Um, so it was, uh, it was good just to kind of watch it. Okay. And probably most importantly, you're also a, a father and husband. Can you tell us a little bit about your family? Yeah. Yeah. So I have, uh, um, yeah, married and I have a boy who's going to be nine coming up, Jacob, and he is my everything. It's like my little mini me. And, um, and yeah, it's, uh, it's good. Um, real simple. And, um, yeah, yeah, it's great. He's, uh, yeah. And you guys both have kids, right? Correct. Yeah. 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 He's, he's just my, uh, my whole world. Is he in grade three? He is. Yeah. And okay. uh, that's actually one good thing. We've always homeschooled him. Uh, just cause, um, when I was doing before COVID, when I was traveling and stuff, um, like I went out to New York and did some stuff with the FDNY and, and they came with us, uh, came with me and, and, um, and that was kind of like the goal was to early on was to be able to travel and do stuff and, um, and have him kind of experience the world that way. Um, so I was kind of, so with COVID, it didn't really affect things a whole lot cause he was already homeschooled and, and that. I'm assuming Jacob can frame a house already. Uh, no, you know, he's, he's got different interests, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, he, uh, he always know. I remember like, I remember a distinct uh, memory of being like, um, I don't know how old he maybe was like three or something really young. And it was right around the time where I was doing lots of uh, presentations and always kind of creeping onto job sites and taking pictures. And I remember going by a place that was being framed and him being like, 
um, hey, hey, you stop. You can take a picture of that, like, you know, very young and kind of um, in, in his uh, real basic words. So it was, uh, it was pretty funny. So he definitely, he definitely knows what's up. That's pretty cute. Um, and then how long have you been doing this? How long have you been in the fire service total? Yeah, so I started out in 2003 was when I uh, was when I first started and then um, full time working for Vancouver um, since the beginning of 2011. So, OK. Uh, anything else for the bio that we missed? I don't think so. That's uh, that's pretty. I guess the only other thing when we're talking about the NFPA stuff, actually, I guess a, a big part of what I've been doing recently is um, I have a position where I'm, uh, they, this is the term they gave up, but I'm the building codes and standards consultant for the, um, the IFF. And uh, so um, I'm sure you guys are familiar. There's a gentleman named Shonda Crane who retired out of Cleveland who, who basically um, did a ton for, for the North American fire service for as far as building code stuff goes. And then he moved on to UL and, um, and I got nominated for, to try to do a part of his position. So uh, that's kind of like a lot of what I've been doing now is being involved in the building code side of it. Like right now in Canada, we're a year and a half into a, a, a joint task group where we're looking at the fire performance of floor systems. Um, so in Canada, we're like one of the only, uh, you know, developed nations where you're allowed to have unfinished basements and have occupancy in the building. Um, I know there's a few states that have uh, that have allowed that um, individually, but nationally, uh, the United States, you're required to have some for protection on floor systems. But in Canada, uh, you can go into any basement and people can have it stuffed full of storage and have no uh, drywall or gypsum board on the underside of the lightweight floor system. So, so that's been a big thing of what I've been doing now is involved kind of from the fire service perspective in the building codes, trying to, trying to make things um, safer and, and, you know, um, give us more time and ability to, to do the jobs that we need to do. Well, thank you for that. I know that sometimes that is kind of overlooked and we only think about this kind of after something really bad happens, but I appreciate you being kind of proactive uh, on that end. And for anyone who is unfamiliar with, with Chief DeCrane, another great rabbit hole to, to go exploring. Uh, he's, he's taught for years and is just a great guy. Mm -hmm. um, as we're all painfully aware, passion and motivation are not ubiquitous in the fire service. Um, even the most engaged of firefighters kind of that, that passion seems to ebb and flow. Any advice to our listeners um, on how to stay motivated during our valleys and throughout our careers? Well, oh, that's a tough one because this is something that I, like even though I, I teach and I'm really involved, um, it's definitely stuff that I've gone up and down with as far as motivation. A lot of my motivation, I guess, has waned when I get frustrated with stuff. Like, <laughs> and I'm sure that's uh, like, I'm sure both you guys could relate to that. And I'm sure most people that are listening to this podcast um, can relate to that when you're, you know, would love to see change and, and trying to influence things in a positive way. And you get, you know, up against brick walls. And that's, that's the times where I found that it's the diff most difficult, but um for me, it just always comes back to um, staying motivated. It's just like at the end of my career, I don't care what anyone thinks of me or that. I just, I, you know, I like to be that guy that shows up and people are like, oh, good, you know, James is here. Or, you know, the, the captain looks back in the rig and sees you sitting back there and, 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 uh, you know, you're kind of known to be a good firefighter. And that's, that's really what keeps my motivation is I don't want to, 
I don't want to show up and never know what to do or never be in a position where I'm ready. And that's just, you know, I guess that kind of comes back to just like internal motivation, like some people have and some people don't, but, um, you know, that's really, for me, that's what it is. I just don't want to show up and have people depend on me and not be in a position where I know what I'm doing or physically able or, or something like that. Yeah, thank you for, for being open and honest, too. I think this is important for all the listeners to know that even in the, the most engaged firefighters or who we think are the most engaged, you know, that, that passion kind of ebbs and flows, that motivation ebbs and flows, and that's, that's pretty typical. Well, you know, it's something, too, like when you teach, like, on a national or international level, or even, like, you have a reputation in your fire department, and, you know, whether that's a good reputation or not, you know, being a fire nerd or whatever you can get classified as, like, that's, that holds a bit of responsibility, too, where it's, like, you know, it's, you're, like, people think you're this one way, so you have to maintain that, and that, you know, that's, that's probably something not a lot of people talk about, but, you know, and there's people that, you know, look at, I could, you know, pick any, you know, you know, I think of like, I just pick a random name, like Jerry Smith. Like I think of a guy like that and, and his reputation and uh, I love Jerry, but um, you think of a guy like that and you go to his department and he's going to be a guy who's, you know, switched on and someone that everyone looks up to and, and uh, you're not going to, you know, typically see one of those guys and then go to their job and it, and have the everyone around him be like, no, that guy's a, that guy's a dud or he's, you know, it's all show. So there's a little bit of that too, where you want to just, you want to, you know, it's like a, not a pressure, but being honest, there's that kind of side of it too, where you got to live up to, to what you, you know, said you are or that sort of thing. I don't know if that makes any sense. I'm just rambling. No, I think it totally does. Um, I think the fact that, you said a couple of things in there. The fact that you don't want to suck, you know, and I'm going to distill that down. That's what I, what I pulled out of there. You don't want to suck is important. You also don't want to be inauthentic and, and preach a message and then not follow through with that. You don't want to talk the talk, but not walk the walk. So once you put yourself out there on, on, on some level, you have to back that up. Yeah. I actually had a funny experience that happened. Um, so we have, um, we have one of our stations is, is that we call them fire halls. So number two fire hall is, is the busiest fire hall in Canada. Um, like I think like in recent months here, they're doing between 15 and 1500 and 1700 runs a month out of that, out of that fire hall. Um, but every, so they, just because it's in our real, um, it's called the downtown East side and it's our very like, um, uh, it's full of like single room occupancy apartments. It's where all of our safe injection sites are. Um, it's just really, um, the kind of opioid epidemic is, is just, that's the heart of it basically for, for Canada and definitely for BC. And, uh, just cause of how busy it is, they only send firefighters there for a year. So you're there for uh, like a certain amount of shifts. I believe it's uh, 80, 24 hour shifts, which is basically a year uh, just because of burnout. And um, I got sent there um, last June and I went there and, uh, and I, we had one kind of younger guy, maybe like, you know, three, three years on the job, um, hadn't really worked with them at all. And that's, he came to the crew after I'd already been there and he kind of took me aside and was like, Whoa, it's like, this is, you are not who I thought you were based on <laughs> what people say. Um, just cause I, I guess, cause I'm out teaching and, you know, involved and engaged, but, um, 
I guess there's just this idea that I was like a major nerd or, or something like that, where, you know, I love like the, the whole, like, I love the fire hall culture. I love the, the messing around and I love the sports and I love just that, the, everything like that is just much as, you know, that's as much I love about the job as any other part of it. So I just thought that was kind of funny where people have like maybe a preconceived notion of who you are based on, you know, your involvement and stuff. And I just thought that was pretty funny. You have a class that's absolutely amazing. Uh, can you give us a quick 30,000 foot view uh, of your facts, not fear class? Yeah. So facts, not fear is, um, started, uh, basically from stuff I was seeing on social media and, uh, it was, it was actually one post. There was a post that, um, and it was, um, a picture of a house that was being framed with laminated strand lumber. And just to kind of go into the nerd to know information here, that's a, it's a, a composite lumber product that's used. Uh, it's pretty, it's very expensive. Um, and it uses hardwood fibers as opposed to like softwood lumber that most framing's done with. And they're, you know, compressed together with adhesives and they make this really dense, durable material. But it's really expensive. Um, the only times I really ever used it was when we were, we'd do like a feature wall or if there was like someone was, you know, had spent a lot of money um, getting custom cabinets, we would use that to frame that wall. So the wall was like deadly straight and it wasn't going to warp or or anything like that. Uh, so there was a fire department posted a picture of that and basically was like, beware, like they're framing houses with OSB now. And there was like, you know, that thing was shared like thousands and thousands of times. And there was thousands of comments and the comments were just like crazy. Like, you know, architects and engineers are trying to kill firefighters now. And, and, uh, um, you know, these, all these houses are widow makers and, you know, it was just like all this stuff that was nonsense. Um, and that was really kind of what, uh, what was the beginning of that class is just kind of wanted to kind of highlight some of the stuff. And, and it, it, you know, the name was a little bit like, there was a lot of people that latched onto the name cause it was kind of, I guess, edgy or, you know, there's people that it, latched onto it because it it seemed to reinforce some of their uh, preconceived notions you know like maybe someone who is like like extremely pro vertical ventilation with they think we should vertically vent every single building um they kind of latched onto that class because it reinforced some of the things that they believed um so the name actually doing a very similar class now but i don't call it facts not fear anymore it's just a fire service guide to lightweight construction um, just because some of those like negative connotations that came from the name a bit. Okay. And you kind of just touched on this, but you've discussed in the past busting some pretty pernicious and pervasive myths in the fire service regarding building construction. What are some of these myths? Um, uh, and, and why is it important for all of us to understand the reality of building construction? Okay. Well, some of the big myths, um, we'll just speak really generally. And, and this wasn't even me that busted up this myth. This was, um, 100%, um, Brian Lynch, um, from, uh, irons and ladders. Um, and for those of you, and I've talked about this a million times, but, um, for those listening that maybe don't know, uh, Brian, um, had a similar experience where he was hearing tons of stuff that didn't align with what he was experiencing on the fire ground about lightweight construction. And so he dove into it and, and wanted to find out all the information he can. 
1994, the U.S. Fire Administration changed the way that they reported line of duty deaths. And they made it uh, much more clear. Uh, they started to provide a ton more information, like what was the occupancy like? What was it? What was the construction? What was the firefighter doing at the time of the fatality? Like just tons of data. And so he started the, um, the look into this in 1994. And he went all the way to 2000. Uh, I forget when the first, the first one he did. It was a 19-year window. Basically, and he looked at all the line of duty deaths that were attributed to structural collapse in any way, and then he broke it down and and the vast majority of the line of duty deaths uh, from floor collapse and from roof collapse were in uh, in legacy style buildings. So that was kind of one of the first myths is that um, is that, you know, lightweight construction is killing hundreds of firefighters every year. And that was really all Brian's doing. I know he's um, he's updated it up until. 2019, I believe. Um, so it's now a 25 year window and it's then the kind of the ratios are very much the same. And, um, and I believe that we'll see that change. We'll see, you know, things change to it being, you know, lightweight construction being more, um, of a contributing factor as older homes are bulldozed and, and the ratio of, of homes that are out there are lightweight. That's obviously going to skew the numbers, but, but that was really, um, the first real big thing was, um, was him putting out those numbers and it just clearly shows that, um, you know, and, and vertical ventilation is a good part. And I'm, you know, I'm the last person to, to get up and preach. Everybody should vertically ventilate. Um, I, I think that it's a very safe and a very effective tool if you're very educated and practice it and understand it. Um, but that was one of the big things is, uh, that came out of his report is 80% of line of duty deaths from roof collapsed happened to people either on the hose line or searching. Um, so, you know, and, and then the other ones were people on the outside. It was very few people that actually had uh, fallen through the, the roof as a result of um, performing vertical ventilation. So uh, part of the class was reinforcing that stuff um, that and that was all Brian's work. But some of the other stuff, too, is um, is people get too caught up with with the lightweight stuff and, and how it ties to just vertical ventilation. But um, things like reading the building, you know, people say like when one trust fails, they all fail. And that's just another myth. That's just not true. That's not the way that the roofs are designed or built. And uh, I've discussed this in the past as well, but um, you know, there's uh, I really believe that that this comes down to old school trust roofs where the trusses were spaced out, you know, 16 to 20 feet. Like if you have a big heavy timber arched roof, those trusses you're going to have them are 16 to 20 feet. And if I, if they're spaced 20 feet and I lose one truss, well, I just created a 40 foot hole in that building. That's a big deal to lose one in lightweight construction. When they're two feet on center, um, that's a very different situation. Um, if you do lose a truss. So, you know, that was another thing. Um, another big myth is people not, um, thinking there's no indication that a truss roof is going to fail. Um, which is completely false. There's that decking or the sheathing material is always going to be the first thing to fail. And if you're reading those things correctly, um, you know, there's lots of indication that, that, um, that the sheathing or the decking is being compromised. And then the next thing you know is that the trusses or the structural members will be compromised next. So it's really like all of these myths and, and some of the stuff that's out there just comes down to not understanding it and kind of, you know, misinformation and just not being fully educated. Like you bring up these myths to, 
you know, like a, a guy who works on, you know, truck nine or truck 20 and in, in Los Angeles city. Um, these aren't myths to them because they, they're so educated on roof construction and they, they, these things wouldn't even, you know, these things would seem so ridiculous to them. Um, but it just comes down to, you know, how familiar and aware you are with the construction process and, and, uh, and then just getting the experience from, from witnessing it. Thank you for, for sharing that. Uh, Jeff, I just saw your comment. Give me one second. Um, so from your perspective, what are you looking for on your size up that someone like me is missing? Um, not just your arrival report and your initial size up, but throughout the incident, what are you looking for? What are you actively trying to figure out that, that some of us might be missing? Well, like first, like my size up is I'm trying to I'd like identify, um, the age of the building and what the, pro the dominant or the, uh, primary construction method is. Um, I don't like to use the five types of construction, uh, because modern construction doesn't, uh, really fall into those parameters anymore. Um, but, uh, uh, constantly sizing up, it really like, like you have to understand building construction and fire behavior together. And so there, those two things are really like, if I can understand the way that the floor systems built or what the materials are or the roof system, um, that doesn't, that doesn't do me any good unless I can understand what the fire is doing, like where the fire has been, where it's heading, um, what the ventilation profile is. You have to be able to read the smoke and look for all these things to understand, you know, like where that fire is and how long it's been there. And then when you join that with what the building construction materials might be, and I say might, because we never know for sure, um, then you can kind of paint a full picture. But um, that's the first thing is trying to identify um, what the age of the building is, what the predominant materials are. And then I'm reading the smoke conditions, reading the fire conditions, and then constantly evaluating that. Like, are, is, is the fire getting better? Is it getting worse? Is the location of the fire changing? And how is that going to impact the structural members? I don't know if that makes sense or what you're looking for. Yeah, no, that, that absolutely makes sense. Looking, doing your size up from a I mean, I, I think everybody looks at construction. Everybody says what they believe their perceived construction of the building is on, on most size ups. Most people that are actually fairly good at them anyway. <clears throat> um, so besides uh, sitting in one of your classes, what do you think is the best way for those of us with little experience in building construction to learn more about the discipline? Uh, you know, uh, in, in your opinion, what, what are some of the best ways? I think the best ways is by getting out and walking buildings that are under construction. Um, I think that that's really crucial. And then I, I kind of have like a caveat to that is like, if you do it, you really want to be walking with somebody who understands what's going on. Um, but uh, like, you can like, even me, like I, I love building construction and, you know, I'm like formally trained and, you know, went to a technical college for it, but most of the building construction books out there, like, it's so hard to get through them. Like it's, and it's not that they're bad books. It's just like, it's a dry, you know, subject and it's technical and it's hard to understand. And, and so I really think that by, um, by walking through job sites, you can, you know, it, it, it directly relates to, okay, this is, this is a home or a building that's being built in my first due or in my community. And, um, you know, this is a real, 
a, you know, this is going to be a real building that I could come up against. And, um, but again, you really want to have somebody who, who knows. And, and there was an example of this. Um, we had, a, a, we can build up to six story wood frame, um, like apartments here in British Columbia. And there was one going up just on the edge of our first due. And so the fire prevention uh, officers and the battalion chief were running all the crews through that building. So we were at shift change and what, and we hadn't gone yet. Uh, but one of the other crews had gone and uh, what they had, when they were walking through it, what they had seen is they were open. Uh, they were wood eye joists were the floor system. And what they, as they walked through, the guys were putting sheetrock um, on the inside cavity of that, uh, of one of the open or sorry, the wood eye joists. So, you know, like they would be doing the side of it, the floor underneath, and then the other side. And then one of the guys um, at shift change made the comment that was like, I don't know why we're worried about these things because they drywall the underside, but then they drywall each of those cavities. And that's not the case. They only drywall the cavities where they're running like gas lines and, and some of the utilities through it. So, you know, they probably, they saw just the one cavity that was, that was being sheetrocked, um, not the whole thing. So it's easy to, to just walk through and see something and, and, and interpret it wrong. Where if you have somebody who understands the construction process, then, you know, like even the superintendent or the or the, you know, the lead hand or whoever's on the site, they can provide tons of information. So we're, we're not walking away with a, with a skewed perspective of it. So you've, you've mentioned a couple of times that prior to coming on the job, that you were an apprentice carpenter before coming a carpenter, just as far as like professional progression goes in there, is there anything that you have taken from your journey in carpentry forward into the fire service as far as how you teach how you learn the questions you ask maybe even like a mentorship or an apprenticeship program within your department is there anything that you either have taken or would like to take yeah the nothing that i've really um nothing that i've really uh like been able to implement or anything i'm just a a firefighter but um the one thing about the apprenticeship process is if you go through a traditional apprenticeship when you're a first and a second year apprentice, you're not doing everything. And that's kind of one of the, the things with the fire services, you go to your academy and you show up on the truck and your, your first day as a probationary, uh, probationary firefighter, you're expected to, to be um, expected to, you know, do everything. You're a functioning member of the crew or during like a formal apprenticeship as a second year you know, a carpenter, you're not expected to lay out and build stairs or, you know, lay out the, the truss package or the roof system, or, you know, those complicated, you know, things that require experience. So, you know, that's one thing that, that I like about that is it's, it's baby steps. You're, you know, your first couple of years on the job is your, um, as you're just learning. One thing I, I like about our department um, and I, and we can only do this because we're a large department is um, there's things like driving or, or other kind of specialties and things. You don't do any of that until you're a first class firefighter, like you're in your third or fourth year. And so you really spend those first years just, just being a firefighter and learning those basic skills. Um, I know some small departments, when you get hired, you're, you know, a swift water tech and you're a driver and all those sort of things. And you, you know, don't always get the opportunity to, to just focus on, you know, kind of that apprenticeship side of it is, you know, being that fundamental skills of being a firefighter first. Um, 
but yeah, definitely like it's my apprenticeship definitely taught me lots just about like skill progression and, you know, keep, you know, just the ability to keep things simple and then, and then be able to expand on it. Yeah, it was excellent. Uh, I, I really like how you, you worded that, uh, basically instead of being a, a jack of all trades, you know, become a master at one before you move on, you know, to the next. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> all right. So as far as the North American fire service, what are we doing correct? And uh, what are we not doing so well? Oh, this is such a tough question. I think what we're doing well is um, like recently is things like, um, like the firefighter rescue survey and, um, and just, and even like Brian's um, uh, look at the line of duty desk with lightweight construction. Um, I think we're, we're, you know, it's still small scale. It's not everywhere, but uh, I think we're doing a better job at looking at um, the proper data that we need to, to do our job better and to look at our wins and not just focus on our losses. Um, and it's really driven by like, like you guys and, and, you know, Brian Brush, the stuff that he's been putting out and, you know, all, you know, everything that you guys have done with uh, the rescue survey. I think those are like really good things that we're doing. Um, and uh, and the, the information that UL is putting out so we can quantify the things that we do. I think that's all really good. Um, I still think that something that we're doing poorly as a fire service as a whole is um, is not enough um, not enough, uh, not, not regionalizing things, but, um, like I work for a department that has 20 stations and 800 firefighters. And, uh, and we were just up teaching, uh, live fire for a week with a department that has one station and three to five firefighters on duty, um, a day, like our, our techniques and our tactics and stuff cannot be the same. And I think that we still do a lot of that where, and a lot of that's self-inflicted through social media where someone will, you know, look at FDNY and then go back to their one department or their one station department and, and try to implement some of those things. So I think that's, you know, even our, you know, even our textbooks and stuff that we have are, you know, I think that's kind of an issue is painting, you know, everything with you know, looking at everything through the same lens, even though, you know, geographically and, and department size and how many firefighters you have on duty and all that stuff can vary so much. In the fire service, we spend, and it's understandable, but we spend almost all of our time focusing on kind of the specific tactics or tasks of our job, you know, fire, EMS, rescue, hazmat, et cetera. Should we be looking and learning from other domains, psychology, philosophy, sports, finance, et cetera? Um, and if so, what are some areas that we should be looking to? Ooh, that's that seems like way too much of a smart person question for, for me to be able to answer. Um, but I, I think I, I think we are doing that more. Like I think there's more and more people that are diving into to some of those areas and um and, you know, uh, I'm blanking right now. What's it, the podcast? Um, is it leadership under fire? So, yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, there's places like that where they're, you know, diving into things that are kind of outside and, and applying it to the fire service. And, and, you know, there's, we have so much military stuff over the past like decade being influenced, but I definitely think we should be doing more of that stuff. Um, as far as specifically what I, 
I'm not, uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure. All right. Um, if, if you could see into the future, what would uh, fire service training uh, look like to you in, in 10 or, or 20 years or so? Is it what I want? Is it what I'd like to see it be? Or is it what do I think it's going to be? Both. Because if I'm thinking of if it's what I think it's going to be, uh, there's a lot of stuff that freaks me out when you see ads for you know, virtual reality goggles and someone holding a Wi-Fi nozzle and things like that. I just, that stuff scares me when I think about, um, you know, the fire, uh, the fire service is getting busier and busier and busier. And, and like your last question said, it's being filled with, you know, EMS and hazmat and, you know, everything else that rescue, uh, technical rescue stuff. And, and um, it's, we're super busy. And so the ability to train, um, well, and also we have shorter, like a lot of places are dealing with staffing issues. And so the ability to, to train or have out of service training is getting less and less. So we're seeing more stuff be on, you know, like target solutions or online platforms. And, uh, and that's great for, for, um, knowledge-based stuff, but we have to get out and do practical skill set and have to do hands-on training. And that's something that scares me when I look into the future is, you know, I don't want to see, don't want to walk into a place and have guys with VR goggles doing fire attack and then sending them into a, a burning building. Um, what I'd like to see is um, I'd love to see the re like, I want to see a continuation of the regional conferences and stuff that are happening. Um, there's before COVID it was, everything was on fire. There was a, you know, a call, the amount of co- people that were contacting me for conferences and stuff like that was, was overwhelming because just of how many there there were. And I think that's amazing because you can, you know, guys can travel, you know, an hour to three hours away and go to a world-class conference with top-notch instructors. And, and uh, I'd love to see it keep moving that way where we can, uh, and then, and, and on top of that, I'd love to see departments, individual departments embrace that model. Um, you know, like if you're going to an area, like, you know, say I'll use the firemanship conference in Portland. Um, if you're going to a conference like that, I would love to see Portland and Clackamas and, and Vancouver, Washington, and all those places embrace those conferences like that. And, uh, you know, and encourage sending their members. And I think that's really, that would be, I would love to see that as the fire service moves on. This is one of my favorite questions. This is kind of rapid fire, but I think there's a lot that we can gain from this. We've already heard of a handful of other names. We got Chief DeCrane and, and Brian Lynch and Brian Brush that you mentioned and Jerry Smith and Evan Clark. Um, so all rabbit holes that we should explore. This next one is kind of, you know, maybe it's, it's, it's selfish because I, this is where I, I get a lot of uh, homework. Um, but, but what's one of the best classes you've ever attended or what's the best class that you've ever attended? I, I know that this gets, and this is like a very common, um, question, uh, or sorry, answer to this question. Uh, but I have to say nozzle forward. Um, that was like, I don't know that just like the, the, the way they run the class, the pace of the class, um, the, inst- the quality of instructors that are there. I just, I went down to the Boise symposium, um, a bunch of years ago, um, just a few of us road trip down and, and I took nozzle forward and that was like before I'd even really heard of it too much. Uh, that was my first time doing it and that it, it kind of blew my mind. Um, so I have to say that's probably the, 
still, when I think back to training, that sticks out as, as just being like an amazing time. I remember like my knees were so, you know, blistered and bloody and and I was, you know, so chafed. I could barely walk, but just, it was, uh, yeah, it was amazing. Well said. Great class. All right. What's the best conference you've ever been to? Uh, I have to say, oh, there's so many. Um, this is, uh, can I throw a few out? Yeah, please. Um, and, and so, uh, first, well, there's so many, like my, my first couple of years going to FDIC, um, was just completely overwhelming, just the, the magnitude. And then, um, the ability to have like, you know, so many people that I, you know, knew through online and be able to connect with them in person. Um, but the firemanship conference in Portland, um, is absolutely incredible. That's like a life-changing kind of event. And then, um, and then another one that I want to throw out is, um, I, for a bunch of years now, I've taught at the California state, uh, training officers conference, and it's in Fresno every year. And, um, that is just an amazing conference too. It's, uh, it's basically the four California departments. That's their main, um, training weekend and it's hosted by Fresno fire and they just do an amazing job putting it on. Um, and, uh, they, it's crazy. Those, the Fresno firefighters, like they never say no to anything. You're like, we need 13 more radios. And they, you know, 10 minutes later, you have 13 more radios from somewhere. And it's just, um, that's an incredible conference. And, uh, you're seeing more before COVID happened, you're seeing more and more people come from, you know, all over the place, uh, out to that one, but, uh, there's, I, every, every one of those small conferences or, you know, growing conferences I've been to have been, I haven't been to a bad one. That's a solid answer right there. All right. Slightly different now, but what's the best book you've ever read? And again, this doesn't need to be related to the fire service at all, but it can be. Um, so I would say the best book, uh, Oh yeah, man, I there's so many, but, uh, one that was really impactful f- for me at a time when I needed it was, um, uh, the obstacle is the way I believe is the title of it. It's by Ryan holiday. And, um, it just talks about like stoicism and, and, uh, you know, references a bunch of the, the, um, stoics and, and just at the time that I read it was at a time I kind of needed to needed to implement some of that stuff in my life a lot. So that was like, uh, that was kind of a game changing book for me. Okay. And then besides roof curves, what's a podcast that we should be listening to? Well, uh, well probably mine and Barry's podcast that we, uh, release, um, through, uh, it's been through fire engineering. Uh, it was called the built environment for a long time. Now it's called the, we changed it to the fire environment because we wanted to, uh, to add more stuff, but, uh, podcast is trying to think what I listen to the most would be, I don't like, like I I check up on all the fire service ones, but like I listen to Jocko like all the time. Um, Oh, let me just look here. Cause I know I'm forgetting something. That's what's awesome about 2021, 2022 almost is that you can pull up your phone, go to Spotify (laughs) or wherever you go and be like, oh yeah, what am I listening to? Because there's, you know, some of these answers are like so hard because there's so many good answers. 
you know, how do you pick one of your three favorite bands or your favorite conference yeah. when there's so many good ones? Okay. I, I know which one I'm going to say. And, um, and I hope Steven Tyler is listening to this. Um, but my favorite yeah. podcast of all time was refined by fire. Um, uh, Steven is just his, his ability to host and lead a conversation. Um, it, it was, I just love, absolutely loved it. I couldn't get enough of them. Um, and we harass them all the time about getting it going again. Um, but that would be one, like if, if for the listeners, if it's for a fire service related one, if you haven't, um, check out those refined by fire ones, um, and then send in a Facebook message or a Instagram message or an email to Steven and bug him to do it again. Cause that was, uh, uh, great. I listen to tons of jujitsu podcasts and I, my, my, you know, stuff is wide range of health and fire service and stuff like that. I could not agree more with you. We've done 16 episodes now officially, and I have probably plugged Steven Tyler <laughs> in about half of them. Yeah. I, like, I mean, that, that, that shit changed my, my, like my, my view and uh, it really got my passion going. Yeah, you know, especially when you have ebbs and flows. I mean, his, his guests were absolutely amazing. Uh, made me realize that I love Robbie Fisher when I didn't mm-hmm. even know him. And then I met him and then it just like reinforced that he's awesome. Yeah. So. There's so many like, and, and like to Steven's going to absolutely hate this if he hears this, but like, you know, there's certain guys that I just like, there's tons that tons of them, but like, you know, certain people that I love talking to, like, I love Aaron Fields, I love phoning him up. And, you know, there's like, so much like, uh, every time I talk to Aaron, it's some random thing, like, you know, talk to him about the Black Lives Matter movement and get his perspective on it. Or, you know, it's, it's rarely fire service stuff. And, and then Steven's one of those guys, too, that I just absolutely love talking to picking his brain and, and, uh, but that podcast was great, his ability to, to uh, ask questions and, yeah, he uh, that was one of my favorites for sure. And what you guys are doing, I, I know this is going to sound cheesy because we're doing it right now, but um, what you guys are doing with this podcast is awesome too. I've, I it, it was kind of awe. I was listening to more music and listening to less podcasts, and then I blasted through all of them in like a a week's time. And yeah, it's great stuff you guys are doing. Yeah, we we had a great original plan. We were like, man, we're going to leave it to like thirty to forty five minutes. And then Jay Bonifield was episode number two, and it was like an hour and a half. We're like, all right, fuck it. We're just going to run with it, you know? So, um, all right. Well, you know, we want to say thank you for coming on. Um, If you have anything you want to ask us or say uh, before we go, just, just let us know. And if not, we'll wrap up. Yeah, no, I just want to thank you guys uh, for what you're doing. And thanks for having me on. Um, I, I just I love what you I love the fire nuggets organization. And I love that you guys are doing this. And I absolutely love the um, the rescue survey and, and your guys's involvement in that like something that we we reference nonstop when we're when we're teaching and, uh, and I think it's huge, the impact for the fire service with just like, you know, giving firefighters information, but also like slowly changing culture because that information will drive that change. And you guys are a big part of that. So I want to thank you for that. Well, thank you for the thank you. And uh, <laughs> we will, we will go ahead and wrap up and uh, we'll see you guys the next episode. Thank you, James and everybody have a good night. Awesome. Thanks boys.